Episode 28, The Rise of Islam. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. So, Europe was reeling from the volcanic winter of 536 and then the subsequent plague of Justinian in 541, and it was just beginning to descend into the Dark Ages. But nearby, in the Arabian Peninsula, things were just about to get really busy. In AD 570, in the small desert town of Mecca, a boy was born into the Arab tribe of Quraysh, the tribe that controlled Mecca. This boy was named Muhammad ibn Abdullah, which means Muhammad, the son of Abdullah. But his father, Abdullah, died very shortly after Muhammad was born, and his mother, Amina, died when he was just six. So he was raised by his uncle, his father's brother, Abu Talib. Muhammad's uncle was a traveling trader, so Muhammad accompanied him, most likely, on his trips to Syria and perhaps even all the way as far as Jerusalem. It's possible that he was influenced by seeing both Judaism and Christianity on these journeys. When Muhammad was born, Mecca was a trading center, but it was also known as a place of pilgrimage because there was a shrine there in Mecca known as the Kaaba, a small cubicle building which housed a black meteorite, which is about the size of a bowling ball. All around the Kaaba, other shrines to different various pagan gods had been built as well. So Mecca was a sort of destination for lots of pilgrims from various religious belief systems. And these pilgrims were a source of income for the people of Mecca. People would come to Mecca, they would walk in a circle around the Kaaba, and then they'd go up and they'd touch the meteorite, which was in a silver mounting on the corner of the building. It was an important religious ritual, and the pilgrims usually also offered sacrifices at the nearby shrines. So the local merchants sold both sacrificial animals and also offered food and housing to the pilgrims. It was a key part of the Mecca economy. When Muhammad was about 25, he married an older woman named Khadijah, who was also a merchant and successful trader. She was about 40 at the time, but they reportedly had a good marriage, and they stayed together until her death, 25 years later, at the age of 65. Muhammad had several wives after Khadijah. When Muhammad was about 40 years old, around A.D. 610 or so, he was outside of Mecca, praying in a cave, and he was visited by the angel Gabriel. Gabriel showed Muhammad some writing on a scroll and told him to read, but Muhammad said, I cannot read. So the angel squeezed Muhammad's chest three times, and then he was able to read the scroll. According to Muslim tradition, the first verses that were revealed to Muhammad were, Read in the name of your Lord who created man from a clinging substance. Read, your Lord is most generous, he who taught by the pen 
taught man that which he knew not. Over the next few years, Muhammad was given more and more of these revelations, and his followers wrote them down as he recited them to them. These revelations became the Quran, the holy book of Islam. Muhammad recited the revelations first to Khadija, his wife, and she became his first follower. Then more of his clan followed as well. The revelations emphasize that Allah, which is the Arabic word for God, is one God, not many, and that he is the creator and that he's going to judge mankind for his misdeeds. Much of the Quran is taken up with explaining what pleases Allah and what does not. One of the things that pleases Allah is submission, which in Arabic is Islam. So the name of the religion, Islam, means submission. And this was one of the early teachings of Muhammad, that everyone should submit to Allah and to his prophet. I should mention here also that people who follow Islam are usually called Muslims, which is a word that comes from the same root word in Arabic as Islam. Muslim basically means a person who is submitted to Allah. Islam means submission. Muslim means the person who is submitted. In about 613 or so, Muhammad began to publicly preach about his visions. But not everyone in Mecca was happy about this new prophet. Muhammad's message of submission and of a single creator God was a bit of a threat to the polytheistic economy and the shrines all over Mecca, and a threat to the pilgrim economy that fed them. There was opposition even from his own tribe, because they were the ones who were responsible for the Kaaba. But despite this opposition, many more people converted to Islam. In 620, Muhammad is reported to have had a miraculous one-night journey, which is called the Isra, where he was taken by Gabriel to the farthest mosque, which may have been to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's how it's been interpreted by Muslims for many, many years anyway. Anyway, from wherever he was taken, he then took a tour of heaven and of hell and was then brought back to Mecca. Currently, the Muslim shrine, the Dome of the Rock, which is the gold-domed building which currently sits on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, that shrine commemorates the place from which Muhammad was supposedly taken up into heaven for this vision. Now, other than this story, there's no actual evidence that the Temple Mount was the place where Muhammad was taken, but within a hundred years of his night vision, the Muslims had conquered Jerusalem, and when they did, they almost immediately built a shrine and a mosque on the Temple Mount. So that mosque up there has been known as the Al-Aqsa, or the farthest mosque, for quite some time. Back in Mecca, though, trouble was brewing, and in June of 622, just two years after his night vision, Muhammad heard about a plot to kill him. So he moved, along with all of his followers, to the town of Medina, which is about 300 miles north of Mecca across the Arabian Desert. This evacuation is known as the Hijra, and it marks the beginning of the current Muslim calendar. The people of Medina, 
for their part, accepted Muhammad as a prophet and also as a leader. And in 624, Muhammad began to lead raids against caravans from Mecca. And this resulted in a war between Mecca and Medina. They battled back and forth for several years until 630, when Muhammad led an army that conquered Medina relatively bloodlessly. Most of Mecca at that point then converted to Islam, though this might have been in some cases at sword point. Muhammad then proceeded to destroy all of the shrines around the Kaaba and all of the idols, the images, and the statues. He left the Kaaba standing, and it became the point towards which all Muslims should pray when they pray to Allah. This prayer direction is known as Qibla, and in many buildings and hotels around the world, you will see in certain rooms a small circle on the ceiling of the room with a small green arrow on it, and that arrow points towards the Kaaba. So thus, if you're a Muslim staying in that room and it's time to pray, you should get on your knees and pray in the direction of Mecca and the Kaaba, which is revealed by this Qibla circle on the ceiling. Okay, so after conquering Mecca, Muhammad kept on conquering, capturing most of the west coast of, okay, what's really the southwest coast of the Arabian Peninsula and some of the far northeast coast as well. That's where currently the United Arab Emirates are. Some people in those places that were conquered willingly converted to Islam and some were converted at the point of the sword. Islam was not really about individual conversion it was really about having the whole town or the whole region convert wholesale. Through conversion and conquest, Muhammad united the tribes of all the Arabs throughout the Arabian Peninsula, who before had been scattered and disconnected. But together, they were a strong force. Islam thus spread at first in a way that was very, very different from how Christianity had spread 500 years earlier. Christianity spread in a sort of underground movement throughout the Roman Empire, and though it eventually reached Rome and the actual emperor, its original spread was not through conquering and then enforcing a new religion on an area. Instead, it was more about individuals converting and coming together in sort of a community. Islam, on the other hand, tended to conquer an area by force and then tell everyone in that area that they now needed to follow the ways of Islam and the developing Islamic law, and that law and obedience were then enforced by the sword, if necessary. That being said, though, there were also a lot of voluntary converts. So during Muhammad's lifetime, Islam spread throughout the Arabian Peninsula. Muhammad died in Medina at the age of 62 or 63 in June of AD 632. He died in the house of one of his wives, Aisha, and apparently he died with his head in her lap. Her house was turned into a shrine, and Muhammad is buried there still. The Prophet's mosque in Medina has a green domed shrine built over his burial place. After Muhammad's death, there was a dispute, though, about who should become the next leader of Islam. Some people supported Muhammad's friend Abu Bakr, and some supported 
Ali ibn Abi Talib, who was Muhammad's cousin and his son-in-law. He had married Muhammad's favorite daughter, Fatima. These two groups would never really reconcile, and those who followed Abu Bakr became the Sunni branch of Islam. Those who followed Ali became the Shia branch. Those who followed Abu Bakr named him the Caliph, that means successor. And from this point on, the area that the Muslims controlled and conquered began to be known as the Caliphate. It spread rapidly and aggressively because the early Muslims felt that they were on a holy mission. This is known as a jihad, to bring the whole world into submission to Allah, by force if necessary. Islam spread throughout the Arabian Peninsula, up into Persia, all throughout Syria and what had been Judea, into Egypt, then all the way across North Africa, and then across the Strait of Gibraltar and up into Spain. The Caliphate also captured much of Turkey, and to the east, it conquered most of Central Asia, all the way up to the borders of India. By AD 750, just a little bit more than a hundred years after Muhammad's death, the Caliphate had conquered more land than Rome had conquered at its largest extent. It was quite a substantial empire. I should point out that most of this land that they conquered is still Muslim even today, and some of it is very serious about Islam and Islamic law, even up to this very point. So Islam took root in these places, and even today, 1,500 some odd years later, it is still the dominant religion in most of these places. Now, when Islam conquered Persia, it happened to do that right at a high point of Persian culture that we talked about last week, the golden age of the Sassanid Empire. There was already a culture of monotheism there due to its Zoroastrian roots, so Islam was actually adopted pretty, pretty easily in the Persian region. But Islam itself also absorbed a lot of the Persian influences, including its philosophy and its culture. So the Islam of Persia developed differently than the Islam of the Arabian Peninsula. Eventually, the Shia branch of Islam, that's those who had followed Ali rather than Abu Bakr and the Caliphs, the Shias settled in Persia. And to this day, the people of Iran are mostly Shia Muslims, while the people of Saudi Arabia, Syria, Jordan, Palestine... Iraq and Egypt are mostly Sunni. They followed Abu Bakr. There are some other branches of Islam as well, but Sunni and Shia are the big two. And they still really don't like each other, which does explain some of the fighting that goes on in the Middle East. The Islamic Caliphate of the 600s and 700s was actually a high point of culture, art, architecture, science, math, and learning. A great deal of literature and philosophy from the ancient world was preserved by the Islamic scholars of this period. While Europe was struggling through the Dark Ages, Islam was having a golden age. Muslim architecture from this time is quite striking, with huge domes and arches and colorful mosaics, beautiful buildings. Islamic law forbids the creation of idols, 
So there's no image of famous Muslims like you can see in like ancient Christian icons, for example. Instead, in Islam, you see beautiful calligraphy, mostly of verses from the Quran. It was also during this period that our current system of numbers, which are known as Arabic numerals, was developed. If you've ever tried doing math with Roman numerals, you know how much better Arabic numerals are for even the most basic calculations. All right, just try adding 59 and 87 in Roman numerals. It's painful, right? The Muslim mathematicians also introduced the use of zero into math, which seems sort of obvious, but apparently before that, there was no numerical symbol for the answer to the question. If Julius has four watermelons and the barbarians take four of them, how many watermelons does Julius have left? Well, the obvious answer is zero, but apparently this wasn't a figure that you could write down before Arabic numerals were invented. Okay, in Morocco, in Northwest Africa, there was a tribe known as the Berbers, and they were also later known throughout Europe as the Moors, and they had converted to Islam. And it was this tribe that brought Islam up into Europe, into Spain. They actually conquered nearly all of Spain, and they were working their way up into France when they ran into a Frankish king with one of the all-time great nicknames, Charles the Hammer. We'll look at him and his even more famous son, Charlemagne, in the next episode. Beyond the battle with Charles the Hammer, there will also be an ongoing struggle between the Christians of Europe and the Islamic Middle East. This struggle will play itself out in Turkey, in the Balkans, in the Holy Land, and in the disagreements between the Christians and the Muslims that will eventually lead to the Crusades. We'll get to the Crusades in due time, but I want to mention it here while we're talking about the expansion of Islam. When Islam captured the Holy Land, which was around 700 AD, it cut off a pretty big source of revenue for the church, and it was also kind of a humiliation for the church, and it set up an enmity between Islam and Christianity that to some degree continues today. Now, there's also an enmity today between Islam and Judaism, largely because of the recent reintroduction of the nation of Israel on what had been Muslim land for a thousand years. Also, both religions have a very strong claim to sites in Jerusalem, especially the Temple Mount. So Islam generally has a beef with both of the other monotheistic religious groups, Christianity and Judaism. And that's a bit odd because the Quran actually does mention in a few places the people of the book, referring to those people who believe in the Bible, both Jews and Christians. And it enjoins Muslims to treat those people with respect. The Quran also mentions Jesus and gives him status as an important prophet like Moses or Elijah. They're also mentioned. But all three of these groups had a competing interest in the Holy Land ever since the caliphate conquered it in the early 700s. But it's not just a competition over the Holy Land and the important holy sites there. There's also an ideological competition. All three religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, see themselves as the only right and true way, and they see everyone else as wrong or deceived in some way. 
each religion sees the other two religions as unbelievers or infidels, not quite legitimate. They view each other's beliefs as not true. So let me break this down just a little bit. Jews and Christians usually don't believe that Muhammad was truly a prophet. Well, Christians and Muslims both think the Jews are right to believe in the Old Testament, but they both believe that there are now newer revolutions that supersede the Old Testament. So the Jews are wrong in that sense. The Jews, of course, they don't think these revelations are legitimate, so they think the Christians and the Muslims are wrong. The Jews and the Muslims together both think that Jesus is not the Son of God, and they think that the Christian idea of a trinity is no longer monotheism, but some kind of polytheism. Everyone thinks the other two groups are wrong in some way. Now, these three religions do have some shared beliefs and some shared history, like the idea that there's only one God who is the creator of the entire universe. But there are also some fundamental and, I think, incompatible beliefs that separate these three religions. For example, their view of who exactly is God's people. Well, the Jews believe it's them, the race of people that God chose. Christians, on the other hand, believe that God's people are the people who have chosen to follow Jesus as God's Son and their Savior. And Muslims, for their part, believe that God's people are those who are faithful to Muhammad's teachings in the Quran, and they follow the principles of Islam. My point is that the enmity is deep, both historically and philosophically. Despite some common roots, these three religions are never going to join forces, shake hands, and say, let's work together now. It's just not going to happen it might be possible for them to peacefully coexist side by side in some parts of the world, and that has happened at many times in many places. But I really doubt they'll ever coexist peacefully in the Holy Land. There's just too many competing claims for the real estate, especially the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which both sit on top of the Temple Mount, are together the third holiest place in Islam after the Grand Mosque, which is built around the Kaaba, and the Mosque of the Prophet in Medina, where Muhammad is buried. But the Temple Mount is also clearly where the Jewish temple used to be and where it should be rebuilt, if it's ever going to be rebuilt. I cannot see a way where the Muslims would give up the Temple Mount and the mosque and the shrine there and just let the Jews build a temple. And there's no way the Jews would want a temple and a Muslim mosque sitting on the Temple Mount. A huge war between the Jews and the Muslims is much more likely than them sharing that space. And, in fact, this is what has been happening off and on since 1948. At some point, when I get to the modern era, I want to revisit this conflict and what has gone on in Jerusalem since the founding of the nation of Israel in 1948. But that's a long way off, and before we get to that, we're going to have to take a look at the Crusades and how those laid the foundations of years of enmity between the Muslims and the Christians. But before we get to the Crusades, we have to go back to Europe and take a look at a brief spot of light in the Dark Ages. Next episode, we're going to France to look at Charles the Hammer and his son, Charles the Great, or, as he's more commonly known, Charlemagne.